Well, you look outside and spring is quickly approaching. And uh, I'll tell you that uh, there's one important thing that's coming with spring. And I bet you can guess what that is. Okay, yes, Easter. Yes, we're in church, spiritual, yes. But I was definitely not thinking of Easter. I was thinking of fishing. Striped bass coming up north, waters teeming with bluefish. I mean, it's about as good as it gets. All will be right with the world again. And when you think of the sport of fishing, you have to think about fishing line, right? I mean, fishing line makes the difference between a really good day and a really bad day. Now, when a fish exerts pressure upon a fishing line, It can only, the line can only take so much. And so you rate lines by poundage. The ideal type of line is a line that is very invisible in the water and yet can take the smack of Big Bubba when Bubba strikes. But make the wrong choice, and like I said, it turns out to be a really bad day, and thus we have the climax of every fish that got away story a genre that is talked about often in this church, and the type of genre where you often wonder whether you are in the fiction section or the non-fiction section, as the tale's told. You know, every line has its breaking point. When the pressure gets too great, the line's integrity is put to the test. Too much pressure and it unravels, it becomes undone. Now, that's just like our spiritual life, I I believe. We all have a breaking point. I mean, what happens to you, and I, I don't just mean physically or emotionally, but we live in a spiritual world, we're spiritual beings. What happens to you when Life takes a hard turn. When you undergo a season of serious heartache and suffering, and we all have moments like this, so how do you deal with those moments? And and who's going to stand by you when you undergo a moment like that? Well, this morning, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see a very prominent figure in the Gospel of Luke go through a time such as this. The figure is, of course, John the Baptist. So if you would open your Bibles, we're going to be at Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Luke 7, verse 18. Now, while you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit about John's story. John is the cousin of Jesus. He was born under supernatural circumstances. Not as uh, significant as Jesus' virgin birth, but certainly supernatural. He grew up under the strict regimented life of the Nazarite vow. And we're told by Mark that he was a rather rugged man. Mark 1.6 tells us that John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather, a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. So he's a pretty rugged guy living out in the Judean wilderness, an arid, barren place. And despite his austere lifestyle, people are coming out to John to hear his prophetic word in mass. And his message is simply this. I come before the Messiah. Repent. 
get right with God so that you will be ready for the Messiah. But his story takes a tragic turn when he stands up against political power, the Herodian ruling class. You go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 19, and you read that Herod puts John in prison because John calls Herod out for marrying his brother's wife, Herodias, excuse me, English today. Now, the prison cell is located at Macarius. It's a, a prison fortress, or a uh, a wilderness fortress that Herod uh, utilized often, and it doesn't take much imagination to understand why rotting away in prison can take a person low. And too much isolation, too much time with your own thoughts, too many questions, why am I here? And, and the letdown, when you think to yourself, you know, I thought that things were going to be a lot different than this. He wasn't alone all the time. He was just alone too often. His disciples would come and visit him in prison, and they would tell him reports, oh, Jesus just healed a centurion, and, and uh, he also recently raised a widow's son from the dead. But there was something for John that was missing in these reports. If you go back and you look at his prophetic message, he talked about these aspects of Jesus' ministry, but he also talked about a ministry of justice that would occur when the Messiah comes. And if you're rotting in a prison cell, what do you think you want to come quickly? Well, you want justice, don't you? And so John is sitting there asking himself the question, when is Jesus going to send these Roman invaders packing from our land? Now here's the deal. Sometimes we miss that Jesus' ministry was an enigma to everyone. Everyone that's watching this ministry unfold. It's because they didn't get the luxury like we do of watching the movie before we watched it again. Uh, you've done that before, right? You've seen a movie the second, third, fourth time, and you're no longer shocked by the plot twists of the movie. It's still enjoyable, but you don't get the experience of wondering what's going to happen next. But that's not the case. Sometimes you have to step back and, and try to put yourselves in the shoes of the people that were living in the day of Jesus. There are all kinds of messianic expectations. And one of the primary expectations for these people was Messiah would come, he would set things right, there would be justice for the nation of Israel, and so on and so forth. So John, having those expectations in mind, is a little bewildered. He's a little wet, let down. Jesus, the miracles are great and all, but when are we going to get to the butt-kicking? When are we going to send these Roman invaders out of here? John sank so low that he even began to question Jesus, verse 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, it's important to note that he sends two witnesses. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 19 tells us that sending two witnesses constitutes an official delegation. So this isn't John just simply asking Jesus a question, like I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here. This is a due diligence study. This is a serious inquiry. Are you really the one? What's the deal here? Or, or should I be waiting for another person to come? And, and I hope you see how extreme it is for John to be where he was to the place that he is now. If you look at John's gospel, another John, in John 1.29, he reports John the Baptist saying of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world. Now just pause for a minute and consider how low doubt and uncertainty can bring a person. At one point, soaring in faith, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, and in prison, wondering, is he really who I thought he was? Have you been there? Have you struggled in this way? At one point, knowing what's right, Knowing what's true, knowing what God's word says, you've declared it to others, but now in your life, it just doesn't seem to align properly. One moment you're preaching to the masses, the next moment you're rotting in a cell and it's dark and it's forlorn and it's incredibly lonely. Maybe this came about in your life when you lost someone close to you or you just felt disconnected from God. You don't know why, but you're trying to pray. You're trying to read the Bible in the morning, but it just seems like nothing is happening in your life. And there's a nagging question that keeps coming back to you about God, and you're afraid to ask it. Friends, we all have our breaking points. Now, I didn't share this with you when I got back from sabbatical, but I experienced a moment like this in sabbatical. Now, before going, I was moving on a pretty fast clip of life. I was preaching every Sunday, dealing with the managerial responsibilities of being a senior pastor, plus the just pressure of uh, being responsible for hundreds of people. And you're just going and going and going. And then you go home and you have to give to your children. And then you're dealing with the, the expectations of many individuals around you. And then next week you hit the repeat button and you do it all over again. Now, it was here on sabbatical that God began to expose how low I had sunk spiritually. I would wake up struggling to pray. I didn't really feel like opening up his word, and there were some times that I was dreading getting back onto the hamster wheel. But in his gentleness, he exposed these things to me, and he was trying to say something to me. This is, this is so important for you to hear right now, right? You don't go through these moments for no reason at all. God's trying to say something to you. And to me, God was saying this, I don't want you to go back to church and spin your wheels. I don't intend for you to force things that, that you can't control. You can't make things happen. I'm the one who makes things happen. 
So it was a really low time, but it was a necessary time because God doesn't bring us low to keep us low. He brings us low so that we will look up to him and start trusting in his power, in his strength, and in his timing for things. And this is exactly what John needed. He needed this kind of message, and Jesus is about to gently deliver it to him. Look now at verses 20 and 21. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And I love this little parenthetical statement that Luke inserts here. He says this, in that hour. So here comes this due diligence study. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Let me ask you a question. What is doubt? What is doubt? Simply put, doubt is a loss of faith. One moment you're tethered securely to God by faith, the next moment when you doubt, you stop believing that God has you, and then you begin to ask questions. Is God working at all? Is God doing anything? Is he even here? But Jesus shows John something so important to the spiritual life, and it's this, that even when our faith weakens, God remains faithful. Notice here that even when John is wondering if Jesus is working, Jesus is busy working. He is curing people with diseases. He's casting out demons. John's wondering if Jesus is working, and and Jesus is so busy working that he has to pause from the work that he's doing so that he can answer John's question. Do you see that in the text this morning? Doubt is like a blindfold to our eyes. God is busily doing what only God can do, and we're walking around right in the midst of where it's happening, and we're asking the question, God, are you doing anything? Of course he's doing something. If God stops doing something for even a split second in time, the universe ceases to exist. He's always working. He's always doing something. Paul builds this perspective into his protege, Timothy. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 8, and 9. While he's sitting in a prison cell, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Basically, Timothy Do you think that the work stops because I'm here? God doesn't need me. God's going to keep doing what only God can do. And then he says in verse 13, if we are faithless, he is faithful. Well, how do I know that he's going to be faithful? How how can I trust that God's going to keep doing the work that he intends to do? Well, I can because he cannot deny himself. So, God is not going to stop keeping his promises simply because I fear he will. He's not going to stop bringing lost people to salvation simply because I get in this place as I'm looking out at culture and and the world that's uh, 
happening around us and saying to myself, well, people are just growing so distant from God, they don't want anything to do with God anymore. God's work is going to stop soon. No. That's not what happens at all. He keeps doing his thing. And look at Jesus. Jesus always lets his actions do the talking. Look at verse 22. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So he's not this mystical figure who's come out of a cave and heard a word from God and now he just wants us all to believe it. No, right before their very eyes, blind, receiving sight, lame, walking, leopards, cleansed, deaf, hearing, dead, raised, poor, receiving good news. John, is the list enough for you? Am I proving enough of the prophetic message from Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 61? And you want to know something else, John? I want you to know something else. I know you want a certain agenda, but I'm so busy doing my agenda that I can't pause what I'm doing to do what you're asking me to do. Here's something else we need to learn about the life of faith. We have to let Jesus be Jesus. We have to learn to let God be God. It's his mission. He's responsible for seeing it through. Now, we get the supreme joy of being involved in it, but we royally mess things up when we start calling the shots. So let God be God. That's when you soar in the spiritual life. And and Jesus gently reminds John of this. He says, listen, John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's not saying, John, if you get offended by me, I'm writing you off. But he says to John, look, even in your moment of despair, if you stick with me, there's great blessing in that for you. So with John the Baptist, we also see another important lesson of faith. In the next verses, we see that even the stout-hearted can be susceptible to seasons of doubt. So when the delegation leaves, Jesus begins to question the crowd. Look at verse 24. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? That's a great question. Why did you go out into the wilderness? Did you go out there to see the scenery? Uh, That's one way you can interpret that reed shaken in the wind. Do people go out into the desert to plan vacations so that they can have a nice spa experience or something like that? Did you go out there to see someone who is dressed in fine clothing? No, we don't get that sense from John at all, do we? He was not a posh kind of guy. If anything, he was a little bit cringeworthy. I mean, eating locusts, come on. So Jesus says, why did you go? You went to see a prophet. And then in verse 26 and 28, a prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now just think about that. That's mind-blowing to me. You look at all the figures of the Old Testament. You look at Moses. You look at David. You look at Daniel, Deborah, and Esther. And out of all of these incredible figures in the Bible, John the Baptist is the greatest of all. Why? Well, verse 27 tells us John's great privilege. I sent my messenger before your face who will prepare the way 
before you. So John is greatest because John had the privilege of introducing Jesus to the world. What does that say about the importance of Jesus? If John's claim to fame is simply the fact that he gets to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. One of the marks that I pray for my preaching ministry is this. As we make our way through the Bible, that you wouldn't walk away from the preaching ministry so much impressed with ways that you can be a better person or, you know, informed about stories of the Bible, those types of things. What I want you to see more than anything in the scriptures, Genesis through Revelation, is that the entirety of the Bible, the entire point of the Bible is Jesus. That's why John's greatest. He's greatest because Jesus is the entire point of the Bible. So if we're talking through the book of Nehemiah, guess what? It's pointing forward to Jesus. If we're in the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. You go anywhere in the Bible and you lose Jesus and you're no longer in the Bible anymore. You're somewhere else. But now let's go back to John's situation. Because if he's the greatest, what does this mean? Well, it means that even the greatest Old Testament figure is susceptible to doubt. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself and believe, you know, if I walk for, with Jesus for 20 years, if I get mature in my faith, I'm never going to struggle with anything anymore. I'm going to be all right. You know, that's the kind of fantasy that sets you up for the big fall. Because time and again in the scriptures, here's the lesson. Be on guard when you achieve spiritual high points. You climb yourself up to the top of the mountain of achievement. Guess what your next step is? It's to descend down into the valley of despair. So this is what happened to all kinds of people in the Bible. One great prophet in the Bible, Elijah, highlights this to us. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is confronting the nation of Israel with their spiritual oscillation. And he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So before this king of Israel, Ahab, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a, to a contest of faiths. It's 450 verses 1. He sets up two altars and whichever God consumes the sacrifice by miraculous fire wins. And long story short, Baal is non-existent and God consumes the altar down to the stones. Still one of the most epic episodes of faith in all the Bible. And you know what happens after that? Elijah, he goes and he starts tweeting about the raging success of God and then he, he puts out this YouTube clip. That thing goes viral. Everyone starts liking it. He becomes an international sensation overnight with his New York Times bestselling title, Feel the Burn. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. That's the Americanization of faith, but that's not biblical faith. Because in the Bible, Satan doesn't quit after a great defeat. He comes back fourfold. And so Jezebel 
most likely the evilest woman in the Bible, threatens Elijah and he runs because she's mean and she's vindictive and she's nasty. And from the mountain of achievement, he descends to the valley of despair and he prays this, it is enough now. Oh Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. Friends, this is why everyone needs Jesus, even the so-called greatest amongst us. Nothing in the life of faith is about your accomplishments, your achievements, your abilities. It all rests on Jesus' achievements. Indeed, that's why we see this paradoxical statement in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John yet. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? Well, for believer, you this morning, it means that you're greater than John because you get the advantage of knowing Jesus post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. You are no greater in terms of personal achievement, (laughs) meaning I don't know any of you who have parted a Red Sea or spent a night with lions in a den, but you are greater in terms of experience of grace, meaning you get the supreme privilege of living in an age where in this life you experience the forgiveness of sins covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, the transformative work of God's grace in your heart, changing you degree by degree to look more like Jesus. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 1.10. He says, this salvation is something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. I mean, have you ever sat and thought to yourself in your life of faith, boy, if I just lived during the day of Moses or Daniel or any of these prominent figures where they saw these incredible miracles happen, then my faith would be so strong Well, it turns out, Peter says, you got it all wrong. The people who lived during those times wish they could live and experience the grace and the forgiveness that you experience right now. Meaning, friend, believer, you're living in a golden age of faith. Isn't that incredible? All because of who? The center of the Bible, Jesus. Well, as we move in the last section, we, we notice that there is a difference between John's experience and attitude in prison and the Pharisees who are walking about freely. Look at verses 29 and 30. The text says, When all the people had heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. I hope you see the difference. So clearly God is working in the life and ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. Despite having seen the work of God, John in prison struggles. He's reached right up to his breaking point. Prison, isolation, frustration, those things will do that to you. But the Pharisees saw what everyone else was seeing and they refused to admit the truth. 
This, friends, is not doubt. This is denial. Denial always has a logical reason why you should deny. Oh, I know that I'm seeing all these things right in front of me, but there are plenty of logical explanations for this, and I'm convinced that I'm right, so I'm right. Beware. Beware of the attitude of denial. No matter what I see, no matter how many lives are changed, I refuse to be convinced that God is working. And this is not just the attitude of the secularist who denies God outright. This is also an attitude that the religionist is susceptible to. There are plenty of ossified Christians out there week after week, resting on their religious laurels and and developing a spiritual smugness. I'm an expert on all things religious because I read the Bible more. I pray more. I do more spiritual things. Constantly, this is what kind of floats their boat, comparing themselves to others. And maybe even quietly in their hearts saying, God's lucky to have me. (laughs) Really? God's lucky to have you? How do they deny the work of God? Well, they're convinced that God can't work through certain people, can't change the lives of certain people. Instead of pursuing people who are far from God and inviting them to trust Jesus, they, they uh, impose more rules, more requirements, more regulations upon those people so that they can show off just how morally superior, mature Christians are. Friends, there's a difference between doubt and denial. Doubt happens because we feel insecure and uncertain due to pain and suffering. Denial comes when we grow rigid in our righteousness. So Jesus has no patience for this, and he likens this type of ossified Christianity to spoiled brats playing. Look at verse 31 and 32. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute to you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So these fickle, whining, spoiled brats, Pharisees, nothing's good enough. Children seating, out playing, right? You've seen children do this. If one kid comes in and they start playing the game, then they say, oh no, we're not playing that game anymore. We're going to change games upon you so that you can never find your way into the inner circle. That's what these guys are doing. Change the tune. Change the game. In verse 33 and uh, 34, Jesus says, uh, you know, you, you looked at John's aesthetic lifestyle. You charge him as being crazy. You look at my lifestyle where I'm intermingling with people, where I'm consuming, if you will, and I'm a glutton and I have questionable friendships. So Jesus looks at him and he says, which is it? Which is it? Verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Let me read it to you in the New Living. I think it helps us to capture the meaning. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. So Christ followers put Christ's wisdom to practice, and over time, their faithful lives prove that Jesus is life or is right, both 
now, and in eternity. But this proving does not come without some pressure. I mean, that's the truth of it. You, you can't put a fishing line like this. This one says 40-pound test. You cannot say that this fishing line is 40-pound test unless you put it through a process of testing the line. Because otherwise, the line might get out there, the big fish might smack, and it might snap, therefore producing the bad day, and yes, giving you another story to embellish. Well, in the same way, how do I know that I've really trusted Jesus if my faith is never put under pressure? Indeed, God uses hardship to strengthen us, not to destroy us. The only thing that will destroy faith in your life is denial. That's what we see in the Word of God this morning. It was in 1981 that Stuart McAllister was part of a mission whose primary task was to help the church in Eastern Europe. They were transporting Bibles and hymn books and Christian literature to believers. In one occasion, as they were doing this, attempting to cross the border from Austria into the communist-ruled Czechoslovakia, guards stopped them at the border, and they discovered the contraband. They were immediately arrested. Without any idea of when or if he might be released, it turns out that it was a two-week confinement. Stewart's empty time and just the fear of the unknown began to suffocate him in prison and surfacing feelings and questions and doubt in his heart. In such circumstances, Stuart writes, in retrospect, we are forced to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe in spite of the evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions our own minds bring as our expectations and reality do not match? For me, in my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and to do them in a sensible way in time. I expected that God would act fairly quickly and that I would sense his intervention. My reading of Scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reality of God's Word, the teaching I had received, the message I had embraced, had led me to expect certain things in a particular way. When did this, this did not occur in the way I'd expected or in the timing that I thought it should, I was both confused and angry. Now get this, Stuart continues, and this is really good. Since I had never given any conscious thought to worldviews in general or mine in particular, I was one unaware of how many unexamined assumptions I was living by. I did not realize how little change had penetrated my heart and under pressure the gaps were painfully revealed and felt. From the perspective of time, I can now answer these questions meaningfully, but I needed the experience of doubt and hardship to show me how much I did not know or was not rooted in the biblical answers to these core questions. Listen closely to this. A worldview that merely answers questions intellectually is insufficient. 
it must also meet us existentially where we have to live. Can I ask you to do something? Will you bow your heads with me? It's important that as we process the Word of God that we do not just hear the Word of God, but that we enter into this space called reflection. We've heard a message on doubt, and if your experience is anything like mine, many of us have experienced doubt over the course of our Christian faith. I want you to hear these words from a letter in James, the letter of James. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So no matter where you are this morning, remember that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He does not need you to control it. He wants you to believe that He is in control of all things at all times. And as you release in that way, that's when God can do the profound work through you. So if God stirred your heart this morning, after I close this time in prayer, I encourage you to come forward. We have two elders up here at the front of the church and it's in that space when, when we say yes to God and we go and tell a spiritual leader that I think that God does incredible things in our life and I want to encourage you in that. So maybe it's something from this message. Maybe it's something totally different. You were thinking about something totally different the entire time I was preaching. Well, that's what God wanted you to think about. Come, share that in prayer.